Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for Thursdays with Mary Langston and Trey. Uh, we are grateful you would join us and grateful for your questions. Um, it's a it's a great sports week. Um, so, um, so far, I'm in a good mood. Uh, national championship games, Masters, college baseball is going on, spring practice for football, none of which I don't think Mary Langston cares about, but um, it's her podcast, so we'll find out. Hey, Trey, how are you? I'm doing great. I hope you are. Yes, sir. I'm glad there's good news. How about the South Carolina Gamecocks? Yeah, I, I could I could not watch it because of my nerves, um, and I had to tell you know my family and friends do not text me updates. Um, I kept kind of I will look at the score, and uh, so I knew I, I knew that South Carolina was up, but my nerves just won't take it anymore. So I wait till the game's over, and then I go back and watch it if I like uh, the way it turned out. And mm-hmm. I like the way it turned out. You know, Aaliyah Boston gets a ton of credit as she uh, deserves because she's, you know, the player of the year. Mm-hmm. But uh, South Carolina point guard Destiny Henderson had the best, uh, the best game of her career, probably, which is great because she's a senior. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just so happy for coach Staley and all of them. And congratulations to UConn. They've been the dominant force in women's basketball really ever since I started watching. It used to be Tennessee versus UConn and, you know, Stanford's always good. NC state and Louisville and I'm leaving out other teams, but (laughs) well, what Dawn's built has been amazing. So um, yeah, very, very, very happy. And I'll enjoy this for about uh, six hours and then start following recruiting to make sure we can get back there next year. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a plan. We have a lot of questions today and it's a variety again. Are you ready to get started? I think so. When I hear variety, I get nervous um, because if it's not like related to British crime dramas or sports, (laughs) I probably don't know the answer, but we'll find out. We do have some sports. I hope everyone's had a great week so far. And thank you for having me, Trey. Our first question is from Richard from the great state of South Carolina. He writes, are you familiar with the book A Knock at Midnight by Brittany Barnett? Do you consider Miss Barnett to be a credible critic of the justice system? Uh, I am not familiar with the book uh, or the author. Um, I... So I can, it's impossible for me to judge credibility. And of course that word, you can become credible in your own, you know, personal narrative. Uh, obviously we all know what our own life journey has been like, and we draw conclusions from that. You can, I'm actually, I'm actually on a task force right now that is looking at long prison sentences and whether or not they do what we want them to do. And so you can imagine the perspective that I went into that with because um, I've been in the courtroom where lots and lots and lots of long sentences were passed out. And I have my own thoughts on what the purpose of those long sentences would be. But I'm also open to, you know, somebody giving me their own perspective. You, you just can't. It's hard to make policy based on individual perspectives and narratives and anecdotes. Uh, You have to play the bigger numbers. So it's a long way of saying I do not 
know the author. I'm not familiar with the book. I'm happy to look at it. And it never, you know, I'm never afraid to hear other people's perspectives because if you have the facts on your side and you're a little bit persuasive, you ought to carry the day no matter what arguments are on the other side. So look, I, our justice system, um, flaws and all, is about the best thing we have going for us. And when you, I'll just give you one little, I started to say quick story, but it's too late to give a quick story because we're about an hour into this answer. <laughs> I was working with a, with a Democrat senator when I, was, when I was in the House, and there were some other House members and other folks involved. And we were looking at what you call mandatory minimum prison sentences and whether or not there is a disparity along the lines of, of wealth or race. And so it's a commonly held belief that the federal prisons are full of people serving what we call mandatory minimum prison sentences for drug offenses. Even I probably anecdotally would have thought that was true just based on my own prosecutions. And then when you look at the numbers, you see that that is not necessarily true. And even if you got rid of mandatory minimum prison sentences, and a mandatory minimum just means a judge has to give at least this, cannot go below this, except in some rare circumstances. When you even eliminate mandatory minimum prison sentences, it doesn't have a huge impact on the prison population. So what I hope this author does, and and I'm happy to look into it, and what we all should do, is kind of compare what we think to be the case with what the evidence shows. And so when we hear things, and we do hear a lot of these little comments, particularly by politicians, that the system is this or the system is that. Okay, let's see what the evidence has to say. So, you know, if you love the justice system, you ought to love evidence and you shouldn't be afraid of it. And you ought to, you know, kind of reach your conclusions based on what it is. So, not familiar with the author, not familiar with the book, happy to become familiar with both. And anyone that is interested in making our justice system uh, more worthy of respect and more respected, um, I think it's the best one in the world, but I'm certainly open to people convincing me there's a better way. Well, thank you, Trey. And thank you, Richard, for your question. Our next question is from Pam and her question is sports related. She writes, just wondering if Trey watched the UConn women's basketball game against North Carolina. You missed a great game, regardless of your opinion, she says. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was North Carolina State. Um, And yes, I did watch it. UConn versus NC State. And it was as good a basketball game as I have ever watched. It went into double overtime. And, uh, and I think what uh, the questioner is referring to about whether or not I have changed my opinion <laughs> was I have always had a, a very complicated relationship with a guy that doesn't even know I'm alive, the coach at UConn, Gino Ariema. My dad tells me I mispronounced his last name, so I wanted to make sure I pronounce it correctly, and I hope I have. <laughs> Coach Gino, uh, in his post-game interview, began to win me over a little bit. Um, I think I'm getting weak in my old age. 
because what he said was true. It was a shame that either team had to lose. They, they both played games worthy of advancing in the tournament. So did I watch the game? Yes. Uh, it was mesmerizing. And I do not use that word uh, very often. It, it was such a good game. And I watched the post-game interviews. And of course, you know, my heart was breaking for the, for the women on the NC state. Cause obviously the seniors, their careers are over and to come that close and play such a good game. And then Gino, um, that post-game interview, and then he was on a show called PTI with Phil and Tony, and I watched him interviewed again, and I felt myself softening towards him, and I and, and that's a miserable feeling, Barry Langston. I've got to get back to the old days when I viewed Gino as the enemy because they were beating Tennessee, and I love Pat Summit, and and he won a lot, and I was much more comfortable with that mindset of not pulling for him. And but I find myself weakening. So yes, I watched the game. It was amazing. Is my opinion changing? Uh, the only opinion I had that could change would be I think uh, that I always pull against Gino. Um, yes, it is changing. <laughs> Well, thank you, Trey. And thank you, Pam, for your question. Our next question is from Gina in North Carolina. She writes, why did McCarthy not talk with Madison privately and attempt to address these issues? Um, I am assuming uh, that is the recent story about a podcast appearance that uh, Congressman Cawthorn had that mm. that made the news. And my understanding, I have not talked to Kevin about this. My understanding, however, is that uh, they did talk privately and having been there for eight years, uh, you know, Madison Cawthorn is not the first member of Congress to say something that became newsworthy um, on a podcast or during an interview or even on a hidden microphone. And my experience in the past has been the leaders do call you in and they have a private conversation but nothing ever remains private in Washington. If you, um, I mean, you go to Kevin's office and there are reporters camped outside. So they know who comes and they know who goes and they know how long you were in there. And then they're going to ask you when you walk out, I've walked out of his office many, many, many times. The same with the two speakers and the whip. And they want to know, you know, what you talked about and you may not tell them, and it would not surprise me at all if neither Leader McCarthy nor Congressman Cawthorn said a word about their private conversation. But nothing ever remains private. There, you know, oftentimes other people in the room, whether it be staff, a chief of staff, other members, it may even be like innocent. You may you may tell someone in confidence, you know, generally this is what happened, but then they go and repeat it. So that conversation was private. There was no media in that conversation. It doesn't benefit Kevin to publicize uh, private conversations with members of Congress because, you know, those are the people that vote on his leadership position, but nothing ever remains private in that town. Nothing, you know, all the things we heard about not being a tattletale and keeping your word 
and protecting confidentiality, none of those rules apply in politics. And if it benefits you or hurts some perceived enemy, you leak it. And my guess is that's what happened. Well, thank you, Trey. And thank you, Gina, for your question. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. Our last question is from Courtney in Florida. She writes, how do senators determine their vote for Supreme Court? Constituents, opinion. It seems like they just do party lines now. Yeah, it does seem that way. Um, And it used to not be that way. I think Scalia was what, 98 or 99 to nothing. And, you know, for a lot of people, he was the most um, orthodox conservative on the court when he served on the court. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the 90s. Stephen Breyer was in the 90s, in ter- I think, or maybe the 80s in terms of the votes that he received. Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor were in the 60s. And John Roberts, if memory serves me correctly, was in the 60s, too. So that's three members currently on the court that were in the 60s. Now, what changed? What happened? For my money, what changed and what happened was not just the 30 some odd people that voted against John Roberts, but who those 30 people were in that group that voted against John Roberts included then Senator Barack Obama, then Senator Joe Biden, uh, then Senator Hillary Clinton, and then Senator John Kerry. Now, what do those four have in common? Those are the four most recent Democrat nominees for president. And they were among the you know, one third of the Senate that voted no on John Roberts. And if you want your head to swim, uh, you should go read then Senator Obama's explanation of why he voted against John Roberts. It, it is one of the more amazing pieces of polemics that I have ever read. He listed all the reasons that John Roberts was qualified, academic rigor, uh, well-written opinions, fidelity to the law, well-qualified by the ABA. He may have been unanimously well-qualified by the ABA. He gave all the reasons that someone should vote for John Roberts. And then he said, but I can't. And the reason he can't um, is because it's smarter politics to vote no. And so I think Republicans figured that out, too. You know, Lindsey Graham voted for Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Lindsey Graham's approach to Supreme Court justices is that elections have consequence. And if a Democrat wins the presidential election, then he or she is entitled to make a Supreme Court pick. And so long as that pick is qualified, which is you know kind of a loaded word, but qualified, then you're entitled to them. So he voted for Sotomayor and Kagan, and he has been, I won't use the word he's been living with because you're a really, really, really devout and authentic Christian and you don't like bad words, but let's go with heck. He's been living with the heck of that vote, those votes ever since. So, I mean, I'm not going to ask you because you don't follow this like I do. So I'll just ask the world, 
I mean, when's the last time a Democrat voted for a Republican Supreme Court nominee, even in committee on the Judiciary Committee? It's been almost 20 years. So, you know, what what's what's you can't say it's based on your constituents because. You know, Lindsey Graham's constituency is probably what, 56 percent Republican. Some of those Republicans might say, yeah, you know, we lost the election. It could be worse. Um, He could have picked somebody worse. So, yeah, you probably ought to go. They're qualified. You ought to go ahead and vote for them. And I would say the majority of Lindsey Graham's Republican constituents would say oppose all of them. The Democrat. They're also constituents. They're just not in the majority. They'd be like 45% of South Carolina. They would say, yes, you need to vote for Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee. So when you base it on constituents, your constituents are all over the map. Uh, you, you got constituents that, that are not of your same political party. And even if they are of your same political party, you have Republican constituents they're not a monolith. They, they have different perspectives. So do you do it based on qualifications? Evidently not, because you know, Biden, Obama, Kerry and Clinton all voted against a guy that was found exceptionally well qualified by the American Bar Association, which is hardly a conservative group. That ain't the Federalist Society. That's the ABA. Ex- ex- exceptionally well qualified. And not a single one of them could bring themselves to vote for him. So do you do it based on qualifications? Evidently not. Do you do it based on your constituents? You got constituents all over the map. So I don't know how you would base it on that. Do you base it on party? Uh, Susan Collins has already announced that she is voting for President Biden's nominee. And Lindsey Graham and I suspect other Republicans would have voted for Michelle Childs had she been Joe Biden's nominee. And there were a couple of Democrats that voted for, um, there were actually no Democrats that voted for Amy Coney Barrett, if I remember correctly. There may have been a couple that voted for Neil Gorsuch, maybe one or two for Alito. So something's changed. I cannot tell you what it is. Uh, Actually, I probably can tell you what it is, but I don't want to depress everyone. It's just The days of saying that this is not who I would have picked, but the person is qualified as that word is used, then those days are gone. So I think you will see straight party line votes uh, with a few exceptions. Now, this has been a lengthy answer, but hear me out here at the very end. I, I, I could be dead wrong about this. I'd have to go look it up. Neil Gorsuch, I think... I think there were three Democrats that voted for him, two of whom were in very, very tough reelects and wound up losing to the Republican. And Joe Manchin may have been the, in the other, who obviously is a Democrat senator, but he represents a state where the, where the Democrat nominees for president don't even win counties, much less the state. So, you know, when Joe Manchin votes for a Republican, He's obviously not with his party, but he is with his state. He's with his constituents. So this is an unsatisfying answer to tell you that politics ruins almost everything it comes in contact with. 
including the nomination and confirmation process for judges. Well, thank you, Trey. And thank you, Courtney, for your question. And thank you to all our listeners for all your questions. I really hope you all will keep keep sending them our way. And I hope you'll have a great rest of the week. And I do, too. I would second all of what you said. And uh, questions are are timely and they're thought provoking. And um, and I like questions because, you know, makes you um, kind of become the author of your own perspective. And and it makes you wonder whether you have all the facts, Um, because sometimes even a single fact can change the conclusion. So thank you all. I love Thursdays and appreciate Mary Langston letting me be a very small part of her podcast. Thank you. Have a great week. All right. You too. And y'all too. Bye.